How many of you uh, slept well last night? A few of you? How many of you spent the night, part of the night down in the basement? Yeah. Um, we uh, had an interesting night. I, I grew up on a farm in north central Kansas, so I've had to kind of retrain myself as a kid when, when you heard the siren alarms and things like that going off and heard of tornadoes. You didn't go down in the basement. You went outside to see if you could see it coming. And I've had to retrain myself now to go actually down in the basement because I have a family and, and kids to look after. And so our kids and Nancy and I went down the basement, and our dog actually had an exciting night. He, he's not afraid of storms, but he got to go downstairs, which he's only a first-floor dog. So he was excited to actually spend the night down there, although he didn't spend the, make it through the whole night. Partway through the night, I heard my wife say, Tucker, I guess he was wandering around, and she took him upstairs. And so um, I guess her love for Tucker extends only so far. So, <laughs> But um, anyhow. This morning, I want to begin with a story by a, a pastor named Tom Van Antwerp. And um, he's a pastor in Boston, and he tells about an article in the New York Times that told about a piece of performance art that was performed in a window, a storefront window in the city. Two of the women artists stood in the display window, and they would invite people to kind of dig into the deepest recesses of their guilt that they had felt over some past sin, and then to share it publicly. The article describes exactly what happened. Listen as I read. One of the women dressed in white like a 19th century washerwoman put a finger to her lips and with a wooden clothespin underlined the words stenciled on the glass. Air your dirty laundry. 100% confidential, anonymous, free. She crooked her finger and silently beckoned a man on the other side of the glass. What, me? He asked nervously, glancing over his shoulder. I have nothing to tell. But she persisted. With that, the man picked up a clipboard and, with a blank sheet of paper and an envelope stamped secret, he began to write. After a few seconds, he sealed the envelope and, uh, be- and um, put it in a bucket on the sidewalk and walked away. After a few seconds, he sealed the, he, after a few seconds had passed, and when he was well out of sight, the woman opened the envelope, delivered to her, read the message, and then taped it to the window for all to see. And so it went throughout the rest of this performance. One by one, people jotted down their secrets, their darkest thoughts, and a storefront window became a sort of modern-day, anonymous, very public confessional. And the confessions ranged from the simple and mundane to the heart-wrenching. Listen to a couple of them. The hermit crab was still alive when I threw it down the trash chute. I secretly want SUVs to explode. I haven't yet visited my dead parents' grave. I'm dating a married man and getting financial compensation in exchange for the guilt. I'm 25, and he's a millionaire. I'm afraid my wife will never be able to love me again because of how I hurt her. I haven't slept with my husband in over a year, and I'm about to start an affair with... And she left it blank, could not finish the sentence. Talk about a, a public confession... How about us, you and me? Would we have something to add to that window storefront confessional? Well, we all carry stuff around with us. Some of it we share pretty freely. Some of it we share fairly scarcely. And some of us, we share it perhaps never. What would cause hundreds of people on a day in New York City to allow their stuff to be taped to a window for everybody to see? Well, you might say, well, it's obvious. 
They needed a, a safe place to express it. It was anonymous. It was an outlet for them to, to share, to kind of maybe outlet for their grief and their shame. Maybe some of them were exhibitionists or into voyeurism or some, some sort of emotional voyeurism or something. In essence, though, it was a place for them to come clean. To have someone, anyone, even a stranger whom they would never meet or have a conversation with, somebody who would know them, hear their secret. And if for only a little while, they might find some relief. But the relief would only have been temporary. Nothing could change what they had done or said or thought. The storefront confessional was therapeutic, maybe helped for a little while, but it wouldn't have been healing and it certainly would not have been cleansing. Now, we all have a need for confession. We all have a need for coming clean, for being cleansed. And obviously, God knows that. A big part of the, of the story of Scripture is, is God's redemptive plan, the sacrificial system and Christ's death on a cross so that we could be cleansed by the blood of the sacrifices, so we could be cleansed and we could come clean and, and become and be made clean. We've got a sin problem. And even people who don't believe in God would admit that when we look around at our world, when we look at our, our lives and the things that have, have happened or we've done or been a part of, we would all say that, yes, we do have some guilt about this thing or that thing that we said or did or thought or this thing or that thing that we wish we would have said or would have done but didn't. Guilt is an epidemic in our world. And guilt runs rampant in the body of Christ even. And though you already know that you often feel guilty, it's important that we say it because you'd be surprised by how often we miss that in our lives. In fact, a lot of pastoral counseling, uh, unfortunately, is offered to people who feel guilty and are looking for relief from something. Maybe right now some of you are feeling guilty about one thing or another that happened recently. Maybe what you said to your spouse last night, or maybe recently you, you disciplined your kid and you realize later that you way overreacted and were wrong. Maybe it's lustful thoughts. Maybe it's lying about something or cheating on your income taxes. They're due tomorrow. If a huge sign was put over your head or my head that announced to the whole world our sins, we would literally die of embarrassment and shame. Guilt is a part of our world and our lives. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you put your trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, let me tell you this. You don't have to feel that guilt. Romans 8.1 tells us that therefore those who are in Christ Jesus no longer are condemned, but we are set free. Hebrews 10.14 says this, For by a single offering he, Jesus, has perfected for all time, forever, those who are being made holy. Another translation says it this way, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are Sanctified. Now, the word sanctified means something that's set apart, consecrated, set apart for God. You can consecrate an, a room or, a, or an object or an offering. Scripture says, though, that we as God's people are set apart. We are sanctified, set apart for God and His glory. And Hebrews 10.14 tells us that by Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, by His offering of His life, that He has perfected 
It's past tense. That he is perfected for all time. That's not temporary. He's perfected for all time those who have been set apart unto God. What does it have to do with our issue and problem of, of guilt and of sin? Well, today we're going to be continuing our sermon series from the book of Hebrews entitled, It's All About Jesus. And the author of Hebrews wrote to his original audience and to us today with a strong reminder that our faith, our walk with Christ, our spiritual life, ultimately is all about Jesus. Now, we would say, that seems obvious. I mean, Christ is in the name of our religion, Christianity. Of course, it's all about Jesus. But our tendency can be to know that up here, but in here and out there, in our world as we live our lives, we can subtly make it about other things and less about Jesus. For instance, it can become about the Christian music we listen to or the Christian books that we read or the, the people that we vote for or the things that we avoid or the people we hang with, in essence, how we live our lives. And while those are all important subjects and we are to be intentional about how we live our lives in a way to honor God, if we're not careful, there can be a whole lot of we and me in our religion and our faith, and not so much of Jesus. You see, ultimately, Christianity is not at its core about what we do. At its core, our faith is about what Jesus has done, Jesus uh, is doing, and what Jesus will continue to do in the future. And what this passage from Scripture tells us is that Jesus has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Those who Jesus has made us perfect for all time. What does it have to do with our forgiveness and our problem of guilt? Well, first, let's look at the reality of Christ's forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. Talking about the Old Testament law here. For this reason, it, the Old Testament law, can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Now when the writer talks about by the same sacrifices repeated year after year, he's talking about the Old Testament sacrificial system in which uh, there were Levites, priests set aside by God, to intercede and to make sacrifices for the Israelites. And so on a weekly basis, these priests would go up to the temple and they would lead bulls or goats or take doves or whatever, and they would sacrifice these animals to make atonement, to make people right with God because of their sin. And the author of Hebrews is saying the law and the Old Testament sacrifices could not make perfect those who draw near to death. He's saying they're a shadow of the true reality that was to come. One way of thinking of it would be um, if you, uh, if when you went to college, perhaps you took a Western civilization class, and in that you study all the philosophers and great writings and, 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 and thoughts that have influenced our world. And um, one of the, the guys that you're going to read will be Plato. And Plato, of course, was a, a Greek philosopher. And he had this, 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 this cave myth that's pretty well known, pretty famous as a part of your your kind of philosophy 101 or Western Civ classes that he used to describe the difference between our perception of reality and what true reality was. And he said it was like this. 
He says, you're chained to a wall and you're wearing blinders. So all you can see is straight ahead. You can't see side to side. You just have tunnel vision. You can see straight ahead and that's it. You're chained to a wall and you're looking straight ahead and in front of you is a wall. That's all you can see. And people are walking above you, but you don't see them. You see their shadows being reflected on that wall in front of you. And that's your life. You, you, and after a while, what do you think? After a while, you don't see people in 3D. You don't see their physical bodies. You just see a shadow. And, and your perception your, becomes reality. That's what is real to you. That's what a person is to you. It's, it's not the true reality, but it's a shadow that points to what the true reality is, a human and physical body, a person. Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying much in the same way about the law. The law, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow it was simply a shadow. And it was helpful to a point, but it wasn't the real deal. It wasn't the true reality. And the true reality, the real deal, was Jesus' perfect sacrifice for our sins, once and for all, and Jesus Christ himself, the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. So in this case, the Old Testament law and sacrificial system was a shadow that merely pointed to what was true and real that was coming. Another way to think of it is like this. If I'm really thirsty, one of the most arresting pictures that you can put in front of me, one of the most tempting pictures, can be a picture of a tall, clear, cold glass of water with ice cubes in it. And I can begin to look at that glass of water and, and imagine in my mind what it feels like to drink that water. I might even think about getting up and going to get a drink and actually drinking it. But that picture is not the reality. It's simply a shadow that points me to the true experience of drinking water, which renews me, and rehydrates me. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that if you were a Jew reading the book of Hebrews in the first century, you'd see the shadow as a reflection of the reality of the sacrificial system. But he says that the true Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for us to take away the sins of the world. And Jesus himself said this in John 8.36 where he said, So if the Lamb of God, the Son, sets you free, you will be free Indeed. Because no sacrifice of any sort of animal, no matter how well-intentioned, can save us. Only the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ on a cross for our sins is able to save us. So that's the reality of Christ's forgiveness. Now let's take a look at the remedy of Christ's forgiveness. The second part of, of chapter 10, verse 9 last part of verse 9. He sets aside the first to establish the second. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I've read that there's a technical legal term called novation. And it simply means to substitute something or someone for something else. And, and that's what we're talking about here in Hebrews. God abolishes the first, the law, in order to establish the second, which is Christ as the perfect sacrifice. Now, listen carefully. That sacrifice and that forgiveness does not come cheaply. Anytime anybody forgives anybody anything, it costs somebody something. We may think that forgiveness is, is, is not that big a deal, and you can just say, well, I, 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 in Christ's name I forgive you, and that's it. But it costs you something when you forgive somebody. For instance, I could walk down there and punch Pastor David in the face. He could fall on the floor, probably unconscious, I'm guessing. No. <laughs> After he woke up, you know, after he woke up, he could get up and he could get revenge on me. He could punch me back. He could do that to make things right. Or 
assuming that he's walking with God, and I assume he is, he would say, Doug, I forgive you. He'd give me a hug, and he'd leave me alone, right? Being an ex-Marine, that's, that would be your natural response. <laughs> yes, I'm sure it would be. But that forgiveness, if you would extend me forgiveness in that situation, it would cost him something, right? It would cost him a punch in the nose. Whenever forgiveness is exercised at any point, it costs somebody something. And your forgiveness and my forgiveness cost God his son. And your forgiveness and my forgiveness cost Jesus Christ his life. Jesus died in our place on a cross, and that forgiveness and that grace does not come cheaply. During the Middle Ages, sometimes very wealthy men would hire some poor peasant or peon to go into battle in their place. And historians point out that on at least a few occasions, a nobleman was taken to court after the man he had hired had been killed in battle. And the prosecution would state that the nobleman had not in reality gone to battle, that he had not taken the death arrow, and so therefore he should have to go to battle. But the court ruled on several occasions that the nobleman was not required to go to battle because the man who had been hired had gone to battle for him and had died in his place. It's not a perfect analogy, but you can begin to see what Christ did for you and me. Christ said, I'm going to take your place. I'm going to go to battle for you. I'm going to take the arrow of death. I'm going to die in your place. You don't deserve it, but it's going to co- and it's going to cost me, but I'm going to take your place. That's the remedy of forgiveness, but we must never, ever forget what it cost. It does not come cheaply, and we must never, ever treat it flippantly or trivialize it. Christ died for you and me. Let's talk now about the reliability of forgiveness. Hebrews 10, verses 12 through 13 says this, When this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Reliability of forgiveness. Earlier in Hebrews, in chapters 3 and 4, we are told that Jesus Christ is our our high priest, that uh, he's our perfect high priest, that no longer do God's people have to go through a priest to get forgiveness. No longer do they have to say, "Here's here's a goat or a bull or a pigeon, go sacrifice it for me. No longer do they have to do that. Now they can go to Jesus because he's made the sacrifice for us. He's provided the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice, and he's the high priest, all rolled up into one. And those verses tell us that, that his sacrifice is sufficient for all time and that nothing is going to change us, change that. It's not conditioned. And because Jesus is the high priest and he is the perfect sacrifice, he is the ultimate authority, and he is seated at God's the Father's right hand. Because of that... He has the power to not just listen to our confession of guilt and sin, helpful as that might be for us, and give us relief for a little bit of time, like those performance artists in the storefront in New York City, but he has the authority and the right to cleanse us and forgive us because he shed his blood for us and died for our sins. Again, we can know it up here, but sometimes it's hard to accept down here. I mean, I can tell you, as Pastor Doug, you're forgiven, but it may not amount to much. But if Jesus tells you that you are forgiven, then you are forgiven. 
You can say, I'm not good enough. I haven't earned it. I, what I've done is terrible. It doesn't make a bit of difference. Jesus Christ has forgiven you of your sins. In fact, when we, when we say, oh, it's, I can't be forgiven. It's too bad. It's too, too, too thought out, too deliberate, too awful. That's an insult to God. That's a slap in the face to God. As if your sin is so bad that even Jesus' perfect sacrifice isn't sufficient to cover it. Next, I want us to talk about briefly the reach of Christ's forgiveness. Hebrews 10, 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. A couple things to note. First of all, it says he is making us perfect. We're not involved in making ourselves perfect. We are to work hard and try to grow in holiness. But even, even our efforts are enabled and empowered and initiated by God. Christ is the one who is making us perfect. This is not a, a self-help sort of religion. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You know, I once heard uh, Corey Ten Boom, if you recall, she was a Holocaust survivor. She was thrown in a concentration camp. Her family, because they were helping the Jews, all of them died except for her. And for years afterwards, she traveled and wrote and spoke about God's, God's grace and redemption and forgiveness. And uh, she used to say this, God takes our sins, the past, present, and future, and dumps them in the sea and puts up a sign that says, no fishing. But as Christians, we run around fishing all the time. We keep digging around, throwing our line where God doesn't want us to throw it. But God says, no fishing. Don't go there. Your sins, past, present, and future, have been covered by Jesus' perfect sacrifice. And what Jesus has forgiven is forgiven. And it's forgotten. Now, a little caveat, there, there are things that sometimes we have done that we need to make right because of our sin. We need to make amends with somebody because we've hurt them or wronged them. And sure, there's a need for us to then throw that line in there and to go there and make things right. In the Bible, we're told to be as, as, as much as possible, whenever possible, to, to be reconciled to others around us when we've hurt them. But that has to deal with reconciliation, not forgiveness. There's absolutely nothing in this world that you or I can do once we've put our trust in Christ as our Savior. There's absolutely nothing that will ever cause Christ to disown us. Our past, our present, our future has been forgiven. Finally, I want you to note the reminder of Christ's forgiveness. Hebrews 10, verse 3. But those sacrifices are an, or are an annual reminder of sins. And contrast that with verse 17. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Now in the third verse, the writer of Hebrews is saying something interesting. Every time the priest makes his trek leading those bulls and goats or whatever up to the temple to sacrifice them for some poor guy and his family for their sins, what do you think they are reminded of? They're reminded of their sin, their depravity. And, and that's a part of a relationship with Christ. We, we need to be aware of our need. 
And week after week, that priest would make that journey. And week after week, they were reminded of their, of their sin. Verse 17, though, says, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. You know, a woman once came to a pastor named Steve Brown about something she had done 15 years ago, and her husband had been involved. So she and her husband came into the office, and, and it was pretty bad. And her husband told her, I want you to know I forgive you totally. And she said, I know he's forgiven me because every week of my life he tells me that he's forgiven me. He said he'd forgiven, but he really hadn't. He hadn't released her. He hadn't tried to forget. He hadn't tried to, to move on. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying about the sacrificial system in verse 3. The journey of the high priest was a reminder of sin. The old sacrificial system was a reminder of our sin. But in verse 17, note the difference. God, after Jesus' perfect sacrifice, the new covenant, God remembers our sin no more. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is not a reminder of our sins, but a reminder of our forgiveness and his grace and his mercy. A nun once confessed to her bishop that Christ had revealed himself to her in person. And the bishop was surprised, but he knew that she had a strong faith in the Lord. And so he said, look, next time that Jesus reveals himself to you in person, ask him about the sins of the archbishop, because I'd like to know some of the bad things that he's been doing. Well, because he was her confessor, she said that she would act in obedience and do exactly what he had told her. A number of weeks went by, and she came back, and the bishop said, Well, did, did Jesus reveal himself to you? And she said, Yes. He said, Did you do what I asked you to do? Did you ask about the sins of the archbishop? And she said, Yes, I did. And the bishop said, Well, what, what did he say? And the nun replied, Well, he said, I, uh, I don't remember. What God forgives, God forgets. No fishing. We have all done things we wish we hadn't, and we will in the future too, and we will struggle with guilt at times. That's God asking us often to deal with the issue. But there's also a bad guilt, where after we've been forgiven, after we've reconciled, we don't forgive ourselves, and we act as if we're so special and so awful and so wicked and so unique that Christ's sacrifice for us is not sufficient to cover that particular sin or issue. Listen, if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've come to him and you said, I can't save myself, if you said, I need you to do that for me, I need you to cleanse me, I need you to forgive me, then you are forgiven at a great price, no doubt, but you're forgiven and you are cleansed by the spotless blood of Jesus Christ and by his perfect sacrifice for us and for our sins. Let Jesus Christ draw near. Let him envelop you. Let him erase your past through his blood and his righteousness and his love. Hebrews 10, 14 tells us. And what God tells us we can completely trust. By one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever, for all time, those who are set apart unto God.